Solidus did nothing wrong. Hey, I'm Fingers. Yo, this is Vector. Hey everyone, this is Days Ahead. And I'm Nitroid. You're listening to the Kojima Frequency. No, he didn't, and neither did Ocelot. I mean, or he did a few things wrong. Okay, yeah, the whole child soldier thing and putting gunpowder in, in the kid's scrambled eggs, that's bad. But he might... What if he just thought it was pepper? Just grabbed the wrong bottle. But at least on Dr. Seuss Day, he put a little green in the eggs and gave him green eggs and ham with a little gunpowder. <laughs> right, he just thought it was... He was seasoning it with pepper. He he grabbed the wrong shaker, that's yeah, all. Yeah, I mean, some of that <laughs> like, generic oh. packaging can definitely look the same. <laughs> right. He, he, he's fighting He's fighting Raiden on the top of the federal building, and he's like, oh my god, that was, that was a mistake, son. I'm so sorry. Everything else I meant, but that was an honest mistake. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be a good meme like just like post it as Solidus be like man these things all look the same <laughs> and just like one of them's gunpowder oh one of them's black it's pepper of his eye patch yet. <laughs> yeah. no but he didn't have the eye patch in 84 he's like squinting at two bottles he's not sure which one to use <laughs> <laughs> I got an idea Solidus's cookbook <laughs> every like single a, one has gunpowder in right. it right <laughs> that's the main ingredient <laughs> All right, now we're going to make lemonade. So you're going to get two large lemons, and you're going to throw those away. Then you get your (laughs) gunpowder. Make a grilled cheese. There's some gunpowder on it. The kids will really like it. (laughs) So we're using using whole milk mozzarella. If they don't, they won't remember. Oh, man. So I've had a hard time watching some of those uh, Mads Mikkelsen movies because we've been uh, watching Hannibal lately. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's a great show. I like the first season the most. It kind of descends more and more into pretentious dialogue with each season. Yeah. You know, I haven't but, finished but it. It's I enjoyable. want to. Yeah, I think it's it's just one of those uh things where they they had to they took a concept which was the novel cuz you know, the show is more based on the novels than the movies with Anthony Hopkins as good as those are. I love Silence of the Lambs. But, um, you know, they kind of did a um, a Peter Jackson type deal where they, they tried to stretch out material that wasn't really there and into a serialized show. And they should have just like just do the books like a mini series and be done with it. And they're trying to add stuff on top of that. Like uh, it's exactly what happened to Dexter. I don't know if I would say it's as bad as what happened to Dexter. No, no, nothing is Um, worse than Dexter, but it's like the same thing where like after you get through the book material, it's like, okay, what do we do now? With Hannibal, it's like they're all over the place with this because they've taken pieces from Red Dragon and they've taken pieces from Hannibal and they've been mixing them around. So like season three gets into the Red Dragon storyline, but there are remnants of it before that. And so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of going all over. Right. Yeah, so, but that, that but show, I, I've that, enjoyed it. Yeah, that show it made me understand why or what I'm looking for in a villain, which is I actually want a villain that I'm almost empathetic with. I, I I want the the villain to succeed just as much as the hero, so I get that moral quandary that you know stuff like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars they don't really do for me because it's just like oh space Nazis or medieval Nazis. And it's like, all right, yeah, it's easy to hate Nazis. You have your big bad to to fight, but 
what if at the end of the story, you as the viewer decide like, hey, you know what? The hero is wrong for what they're doing. The villain was actually right the whole time. Kind of going back to Mad, so Polar had a bunch of like Metal Gear plot beat tropes. I don't know how to describe it. I agree with that. Callbacks even, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If, If it was even intentional, it's hard to say. Spoilers for those who um, who haven't seen this movie yet, uh, but there is Mads gets tortured, and it, during that process, uh, he loses an eye, and he wears mm-hmm. an eye patch for the remainder of the film. Right. Uh, there's a point where a character who is a hitman who accidentally took out a girl's family takes care of her out of his own guilt. What else is there? If I remember right, the way he gets tortured is almost identical too, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, yeah, good point. Like he's he's got his arms and he's tied up and he's getting beat up and it's it's oh, just yeah. wild. Uh, there's a scene where he uh, first of all he faces like five assassins and one of them is uh, taking like a vantage point with a sniper rifle. Three of them are gonna do groundwork and then one of them is actually supposed to be like a honey trap, right? So he's with the honey trap, and then somehow during this combat, he kills the honey trap and manages to get to the sniper. And he it gets to the point where it's like a one-on-one showdown between him and like a final assassin. Oh, wait, sorry, I should back up. First of all, he holds up a sniper. So that's one trope, right? Yeah. And then he gets the sniper. He uses it to take out a few, all the assassins, like, but one. And then he can't find her. Like, she's hiding somewhere. And... He's like, don't be scared. That's when you hesitate. And you know how he finds her? First, he finds her with, like, thermal technology. And then Mm -hmm. second, he finds her with her breath coming out of, like, a corner. And he sees her and he shoots through a fridge and he kills her. Honestly, when it got to that point, I was waiting for him to, like, pull out an Akita and, like, like, just kill someone like that. So I got to ask, is Polar the ideal Metal Gear movie? No. Mm. (laughs) ideal okay maybe ideal is the wrong word but good uh, also maybe that's as close to it being realized as anyone has done outside of like escape from la or new york right is 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 unfair to say because metal gear was based on those i feel like captain america the winter soldier kind of felt pretty metal geary in in terms of yeah, political intrigue. I think as far as how this is a proof of concept for a Metal Gear film, I think, if anything, it proves that you can still have this industrial espionage conflict or main plot while also having sort of like a wackier subplot or plot beats or characters yeah. and whatnot. Um, so you have to suspend your disbelief quite a bit during that yeah, movie. absolutely. Yeah, they're and, definitely and, like hyper- hyper violent and just like I don't know everything was like really fast paced with it well, well it's, it's based on a so, comic yeah it's based off a comic and I was thinking more so of like how like Cindy's boobs were like in every scene you know not that I don't like boobs I just you know I hope that I, I'm not seeing like Meryl be a honey trap assassin or Sniper Wolf be a honey trap assassin you mean like that picture that that concept artist drew we don't talk about that. Right. Okay. We're not going to bring that up. Good. Uh, but yeah, it's based on a comic book, so I'd, I'd be curious to see if any of those um, callbacks are also in the comic or if that's exclusive to the movie. Yeah, I didn't know it was a comic. Got to check that out. Wanted was also a comic, and I like Wanted yeah, there a lot. Are just, uh, 
too many similarities to not ask the question of was this inspired. Well, here's here's the, the other question we should be asking is where did Kojima get it? Because uh, I didn't find out in, about uh, Crossfire by J.C. Pollock until like yesterday. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I had no idea. Does everyone know about Crossfire by J.C. Pollock? It's Metal Gear 2, the novel. It just, that's what it is. Yeah, it's literally, that's what it is. Yeah. So check it out. I'm not going to say anything about it. Uh, I want everyone to look at, look into it themselves. And then they'll, you'll just see like, holy shit, this is Metal Gear 2. So yeah, if, uh, if those things are in Polar, then they, I, don't, I doubt they were first in Metal Gear Solid or, you know, any of the series, especially like James Bond has been holding terrorists up for decades. So like the, the seeing the breath through thermal vision, I'm sure that was in Predator or some shit. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, even just Metal Gear 2, it directly pulls from so many sources, you know? Right. You've got just d- directly naming bosses after movies and books. So the running man predator, yep. which it's, it's kind of funny that some of them have been renamed like a uh, ultra box was, you know, obviously came from the band Ultravox, but right, is right. now the four horsemen predator was renamed. Uh, the running man wasn't though, which is weird. Well, Kojima didn't even, that's not even a trope of his, uh, you know, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure has been doing that since like 1990 or no that I think the first issue of that was like way in the 80s or something. They interviewed John Carpenter a few years ago I want to say or like a year or so ago but they interviewed him and they brought up Kojima and I remember John Carpenter saying something like yeah I mean the guy he seemed pretty chill he seemed in good faith so we never actually like went after him and I I wonder how many of those were just kind of that situation where it just like wasn't even on their blip or if it was, you know, they're just like, oh, it's just some developer. He appreciates us, whatever. I'm going from memory here, so I don't know if I'm going to have this exactly right, but the studio wanted to sue Konami over Metal Gear Solid and Carpenter stopped them because he had had a positive interaction with Kojima. Hmm. Um, And Carpenter is even quoted in a couple of Metal Gear materials saying that he you know he's a fan of the game so like when uh the metal gear solid 2 premium package came out i got one of those and there's an art book in it and it has some quotations from staff and other creators and like there's a quote from from carpenter where he you know he just kind of praises the game and i think they did the same thing for mgs3 as well but uh, he's always been cool about it oh good thanks john and uh it's it's funny in contrast to how he reacted to that one um that one film, Lockout, I think that had, I haven't seen what, that Ga- one. I think it had like Guy Pierce in it, and it was basically like Snake Plissken in space. Okay. And they, right I on. think they settled over that, but but they, <laughs> you know, they got you know hit hard by a lawsuit because it was basically just Escape from New York, but put it in space. Okay. Cool. Uh, John Carpenter, big fan of They Live. Great movie. Oh yeah. The thing is also classic. We're not going to talk about Ghosts of Mars, though. Have you guys ever played the uh, the PlayStation 2, the Thing game? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have played the PlayStation 2. You, the way you stopped. Um, yeah, I was going to bring up the, the PS2 game, but I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a game. It's a it's not, direct not the worst, like, uh, canon sequel, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's not the worst uh, licensed video game ever made, but it's definitely a licensed video game. 
That generation had this, like, weird phase where they had these, like, alternative universe sequels to movies. Like, there was The Thing, and then there was Scarface, where it was like, Scarface lived the final encounter. Right. Oh, that game was badass. Help him get revenge. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was great. And they reveal, like, uh, that that neither of them at the end of The Thing were, um, were The Thing, essentially, Right. right? I don't, I didn't, I can't finish that game because it's weird, but, um, but I'm sure, <laughs> sure that happens. That sounds uh, like a great little twist. You know, another game that I'm playing right now, that's weird. Uh, Paper Mario, the origami King has one of like the worst battle systems I think I've ever seen in an RPG. Uh, Days, are you playing that? I haven't played it, but I had a friend stream it and there's a lot of moments where he is like trying to do the puzzle phase in the yeah, first phase. That's, that's and he it. like he just spends so much time, he like puts out some coins, spends some more time, puts some out some coins. Yeah, yeah. it's just like I don't wanna do that every turn. Like it's just like, ah, why it's basically if you haven't seen it, it's basically like a dartboard <clears throat> and all the enemies land on it, there'll be like six enemies. And then they'll spread them out all across it. And so then there's rows, and then there'll be, like, columns as well. So you basically have to have them either lined up in one column, and, like, if there'll be four in a column, you can jump and kill them all. And it's basically, like, if you if you line them up properly, it's basically like an instant kill. Or you can do, like, a two-by-two two row uh, column, and then you can hammer them. But it's just like the worst system I've ever played in an RPG, and I, I don't think I'm going to finish the game. It, it reminds me of, have you ever had like a decoder ring as a kid? And you had to like... Yeah, yeah. Oh, the decoder ring, yeah. The yeah. line that... Don't forget to drink your oval team. <laughs> but I will say, I will say, I do like um, the little like toads in the background. Yeah, I love that. That's heckling. great. Uh, there's like... The battle music is very like Persona esque, and one of the toads can say like, "Uh, uh oh, they'll never see it coming." <laughs> and I like the uh, I like the rhythmic timing, you know, like the classic, you know, Mario RPG. You know, you, you hit the button when you're jumping on them, and then you gotta time the hammer swing a little bit, and you know, that's all great. But having to do this slider bullshit is the worst. See now, Mario RPG, that's. That's a classic to me, and I keep hoping that they'll properly revisit that. Not like Mario and Luigi game, RPG, or, you know, as they call it in Japan. What do they call it here? Like uh, Superstar Saga or something? Yeah, those games. There, yeah. There's, like, essentially Mario RPG branched off in two directions, and you have yeah. the Mario and Luigi games, and then you have the Paper series. And then they, they and, did, like, one crossover. And I want them to, like go back to the original Mario RPG and maybe do like a modern take on that. It's like, this is close to it, but it's just this thing with the battle system is stupid. So what's worse? uh, Is this worse or is using the triggers to maintain your balance and death stranding worse? I'll hold triggers all day. This is (laughs) fuck slider puzzles. I, um, (laughs) I've been getting like, now that I've been I've been replaying that on PC. Now that you mentioned that, how's your carpal tunnel going now? <laughs> uh, uh, it's actually it's not as bad as it is like the first experience because you actually know what you're doing, and yeah. also running this shit in like 120 frames per second is also pretty nice. 
Um, yeah, some of the footage and screenshots I've seen of this game running just completely maxed out, or it's it's incredible looking. Oh, I cannot stop taking screenshots, and I'm playing on hard mode this time around. There you go. Isn't there a? There's a very hard mode now too, isn't there? There yeah. is a very hard mode. I um, I have no way to play it on PC currently. My my computer is like a MacBook from 2014, so. That's not going to happen. No worries. I'll uh, I'll play it for everybody spiritually, except for you, Vector. Um, I don't yeah, want to put you through that. that. Um, in addition yeah. to that, uh, I've also been like digging a little bit into uh, Zone of the Enders 2 Mars VR. Um, now that is a good time. Yeah, that was a way better experience than I expected. It's funny because the first segment of the game, you play this like mining unit. And it looks very, like, it looks very archaic. Like, you only see, like, the screen ahead of you, and you think, oh, this this is going to be, like, a shitty VR experience. And then once you get into Jehuti, it's so hard to describe VR, I swear to God. But it's a good experience, and it's funny because the cutscenes in VR, you know, they're still 2D, so it's kind of like you're looking into a movie theater. Right. Even though he was just a producer, it's the closest thing we're going to get to Kojima, like, watching a Kojima film, at least for now. I think it's funny what they did with the intro and the the Lev unit that they have you in before you get the orbital frame, that that clunky old robot. I kind of wish they had made it VR, just so you could kind of look around in there, but I get that they were trying to mirror what the original game did with that segment, which was to stick you in this clunky, awful, sluggish... Uh, robot to start you out with for like you know three minutes and then you get control of Jehuti and it's it immediately opens up and it's at quick and agile and uh, you know easy to control and so the fact that they have that crappy VR mode where you've just got the screen in front of you and then as soon as you get in the orbital frame it zips into full VR like you said is is mm-hmm. is a cool way to of kind of reflecting that and I was shocked that playing it in VR was nowhere near as disorienting as I thought it was going to be. Because you, you hear Zone of the Enders VR, and without having seen it or played it, that sounds like a terrifying prospect with how fast that game moves. Uh, like, like that's, that's going to make you vomit so quick. But it doesn't, because they sort of, they kind of gyroscopically lock you into a single perspective, and mm-hmm. it works very, very well. So, like, if Jehudi's doing flips or something you can kind of see a, a visual representation of it doing a flip, but your view doesn't flip with it. In some ways, I find it a little less disorienting than the original because I hated how it shifted out perspectives depending on the type of combat. Whereas here, you know, I feel like I'm a pilot, which it helps that I have like this reclining executive chair with this with a, like a footrest and shit. So I, I kind of feel like a pilot... Uh, I don't know, maybe I'll get, like, a fan to give me the, like, cockpit experience <laughs> or something. But, yeah, no, it's excellent. It would be interesting to see them make an entirely new Zone of the Enders game, but build it from the ground up with VR in mind just to kind of see what kind of ideas they come up with. But, yeah. sadly, I think that ship has sailed. Somebody's got to make a, uh, I don't know, I, I don't, there, there probably is a good mech game out there. I just haven't found it yet. Too busy... Not, like, not playing Half-Life Alex and playing Beat Saber instead. Yeah. Zone of the Enders is one of those series that is just... Um, the second one in particular, you know, has critical acclaim, but it just never sold well. It just didn't click. 
So every time they've tried to bring it back, it just sort of flounders, and then you never get a follow-up. I remember uh, the the reason Zone of the Enders 3 never happened was because the HD collection sold so poorly. Wasn't the HD collection originally, like, at launch, like, vanilla, like, not very well optimized, and then they had to yeah. like, patch it? And it's, it I'm curious bad. how much that might have had an impact on it. And they did later patch it, and it runs pretty well. But yeah, it was kind of a mess. Because I personally love Zone of the Enders. That's why I was apprehensive about picking up the remasters, because all the reviews said that you know it doesn't have that clean experience that you'd expect from the game. So It's funny, too, what they did when they released it, because it came with a demo of Metal Gear Rising. Oh, yeah, I remember that. So it was like mimicking what they did with Zone of the Enders and MGS2 back in the day, but I guess to lesser effect. Uh, you just reminded me of, um, I remember when there was sort of a divide back in early 2000s with rental places, like rental video places, that gave you the MGS2 demo when you rented Zone oh, of the Enders, right. and the ones who did not. And assuming they even kept it, some places would have you rent it as a separate game. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Which, that's just crappy. Yeah. I bought uh, ZOE1 like the day it came out, put the disc on the shelf, and just played MGS2's demo for hours. <laughs> God, I sank so many hours into that demo. It was a good just demo. tearing it to pieces. Gamers talk about like getting value out of, like, oh, I got X hours out of this like $60 game or whatever. It's like, look at this. This comes with, like, a demo you're going to waste, like, 15 hours on. And a game, once you get sick of the demo. And then the game ended up being pretty decent. Yeah. You know, it's kind of crazy how much they improved uh, ZOE 2 over ZOE 1. And, you know, it's it's there's a bit of a parallel between what I think must have happened with 1 to 2 that also, I think, happened with Metal Gear Acid 1 and 2. So... Okay. If, you, if you're looking at, like, bottom-line sales for a game, and I, I know this is the case with Acid 2, but I, I only suspect it's the case with, with Zone of the Enders. The first game comes out, and it sells like gangbusters. Not because of the game, but because of the demo. You know, the old joke was, hey, if you buy the Metal Gear Solid 2 demo, you get Zone of the Enders for free. Right? Like, everybody's right. heard that joke. Yeah. So the bottom line to some suit at Konami is going to be like, oh, wow, this new mech series that we've got is a big hit. Look how many copies we sold. And like, it was very apparent that Konami wanted to turn Zone of the Enders into like their kind of version of Evangelion. I mean, like they had like an OVA that came out with it. They yeah. developed, uh, you know, Dolores Eye, which was the anime series. I mean, they really put a lot of, of thought into the world building for this. Um, and it just, it just didn't take. So when the second game comes out, it's got a much higher budget, much higher production value. It's very refined. They've learned from their mistakes. Uh, and, it's, and, you know, everybody kind of agrees that the second game is, is, you know, just like a classic. First game's interesting, but not all that great. Right. And so I just, I, I wonder if, you know, the only reason the second one was so good is because the first one was piggybacking off of the success of MGS2 uh, and that demo. But with Metal Gear Acid, that was absolutely the case to an extent, because when the PSP launched, Metal Gear Acid came out, and nobody had a clue what that game was, right? So they see, oh, I got this new PSP, this portable PlayStation, and there's a Metal Gear game. I'm going to get that. Right. And the first Metal Gear Acid game sold pretty darn well. 
but it was because nobody really knew what they were getting into. You know, they get into it and they're like, wait a minute, why is, what is this card game? Like, what, what's going on here? And so on paper, Metal Gear Acid sells well. And, and Ryan Payton has talked about this a little bit, and he was a community manager for Kojima Productions uh, at the time. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was on an episode of Retro Knots that he talked about this, but I, but I don't remember, so don't quote me on that. But he, he went into this a little bit about how uh, Acid 2 didn't sell hardly any copies at all because by <laughs> that time, the jig was up and people knew what it was. I which mean, is I a can't shame. imagine... I just cannot imagine you being so stupid that you go to buy a PSP game or any game and you don't look at the back of the box, look at a single screenshot, you know, like if I were to Google search the, I don't have my copy of Acid on me, but if I, if you just look at the back of the box, I, I that doesn't make any sense to me. How I know, you would, I know, but that's what happened. I, and that doesn't compute. I know it doesn't. And two was great. I'm wondering how much of that was correlated with, like, the popularity of the PSP between the two releases as well. Because I do remember at some point the PSP became a meme. It did, but by all, you know, but by I, all it, measures, the PSP was a successful system. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to understate, you know, what you were saying. But to that effect, yeah. I mean, even as a kid, I would look on the back of the box. Like, if, uh, yeah, I... If, if I, as 11 years old, can know that, like, Chain of Memories is not going to be the same experience as Kingdom Hearts 1, I think exactly people can differentiate and delineate between <laughs> Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear Acid. Apparently they did not. That's um, too bad. Yeah, it says on the I, back of the box, it's like different card decks give you new abilities and actions unique to the theme of the deck. So... It, I'm looking at the back of the box, and yeah. the text is really small. It almost is, like, designed for you to ignore it. So maybe they were, like, trying to trick people into thinking, like, hey, it's a it's an actual Metal Gear game. But that doesn't make any sense because it's like you know what the game is like before you play it, hopefully. I just I can't understand people who, like, go into a game shop and just pick up a game without knowing how it plays. Like even even if I if I pre-order a game, like uh, I remember being really cautious about the first Red Dead Redemption because I'm like, oh, I don't know if if Rockstar is going to be able to pull this off, uh, and they dropped the ball miserably with Red Dead Redemption too. So you know, I I learned my lesson. But it wasn't until the game came out where I was like, you know, it was getting good reviews, and I was like, oh, okay, cool, I, I think uh, I'll check this out. But um, it's it's weird that like, oh, here's the Metal Gear name on it. I mean, me, the fanboy I used to be, of course I'm going to buy it. And I never, I've never played any, any of the Acid games, but I have multiple copies of them because I was that kind of person. And, you know, that's different than being tricked into, into buying yeah. a game. That's, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And it's a shame that it wasn't kind of taken as it was intended because that is a creative game. And it's, the first game is pretty, it can be a little janky. Uh, maybe janky's the wrong word. It's very obtuse. It's it's yeah. It's unintuitive. Like you're just like, what am I supposed to do right. in this situation? Like, it, and nothing really, really works the way that you think it's, it's going to. Yeah, it doesn't communicate well what you're supposed to do, and the pacing's all over the place. But the second one, you know, again, once they had kind of gotten a higher production budget, they learned from their mistakes. The right. second one plays great. You know, they've got mm -hmm. a unique art style that they've worked into it. The, the game is more intuitive. It makes more sense. You never feel like 
you don't know what's supposed to happen or what you're supposed to do next. Uh, the pacing's far better, so the missions are, are more compact. You can it's more pick up and go, like which seems like what they were intending in the first place. Apparently, it came with 3D glasses. It did. It came with. Um, they called it the Solid Eye in the U.S., just like they did with you know, because it was it was MGS4 was in development and was being advertised around the same time. Right. Uh, so it was called the Tobit Acid in Japan, and it. <laughs> uh inside was this little fold out um the the Japanese version had a higher quality one that came with it but uh right. both of them were essentially these fold out little things that you put over your PSP and you look through it and it splits the image down the middle and the game would take the gameplay and render it twice one on each half of the screen and it would look 3D and yep. then they also included like cutscenes from from like MGS3 that were in 3D as well so yeah that's cool, cool little idea. Yeah, it's uh, I I'm surprised that it didn't sell well. But um, then Portable Ops came and and you know, yeah, ate that game's lunch because that game sold like crazy once people were like, oh look, it's a proper Metal Gear, and then we never got anything creative again. And Kojima Quote was unquote. like, proper. Kojima's <sighs> like, look guys, this is this is Metal Gear Solid Five, and then Metal Gear Solid Five was announced, and he's like, oh, uh, this is not Metal Gear Solid Five. Well, that was a Peace Walker. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Port- Which fuck? Yeah. Oh my God. Sorry. Portable Ops. Like, have I, you seen the logo for 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 I, Peace Walker that originally I, had the five on it? I didn't. But sorry, I put Portable Ops out of my head. I totally forgot about like Gene and that Ocelot and Big. It's Boss understandable. Reconnect. Oh. It's okay. Wait a second! Did you just confuse Peace Walker for Portable Ops? Uh, <coughs> I, no, I'm I have heard through the grapevine that internally. Peace Walker was called Portable Ops 2 for a short time. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that is what I've heard. I think I might have heard something similar to that. But also, I wouldn't be surprised if at one point during MPO's development, Kojima Productions was calling it officially MGS5 because it was it was intended well, to be canon. And then afterwards, mm-hmm. Kojima, he like disowned it because he... I don't think so because 4 wasn't even out yet at that point. Oh, right, right. And Portable Ops was was essentially made with, you know, a very small team on a shoestring budget yeah. uh, in like a year or something. And again, I think Ryan Payton's talked about this uh, in that same podcast. Um, so I got to find I got to find that again. But Peace Walker absolutely was called Metal Gear Solid five uh, early on. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if that would have been the right call because it's so tonally different from MGS four. So, yeah, you can you can kind of. Yeah, it's canon, but it's also like a like a spinoff. It, it diverts from the, the main series a, a whole lot. So, hey, we are about a half hour into this. So what do you guys say to some Q&A? Let's do it. All right. We put up a thread asking for listener questions, and uh, we got a bunch. Yeah, got a whole bunch. Some really good ones in here too. Uh, thank, thanks to everybody for asking questions. We love engagement like this. You know, uh, if you talk to us, we'll talk right back. We're like Furbies. Makes us feel important, <laughs> and we like rambling about this stuff. So if you like us rambling <laughs> about it, please send questions. Anytime, any any place, or you know, as long as you're not being ridiculous about it, I guess I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, who wants to to start? I mean, we got to we gotta tackle the big one. You, you sure you want to jump into that one first? Was that, yeah, like, let's was just that do a it. pun? 
It might have been. It was a subconscious pun. Wait, which, which say the pun again? I want to. I want to know the pun. The big one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wish I had that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wish I had that. <laughs> Quick quack man on Twitter. He uh, posted this. I've been reading about, analyzing, and replaying MGS2 over and over for years now, and I still don't understand why the president grabs Raiden's crotch. Can any of you shed a light on this incredibly random and outrageous moment? Absolutely, I can. He was horny. My my answer, my, <laughs> that's, that's, that's one way of looking at it. The president's been locked in that room for quite a while. <laughs> it's lonely at the top. <laughs> so... Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I have a legitimate answer, but uh, I mean, are you sure we want to even dignify this with an answer? Yes. We can answer the question, right. but also still think it's ridiculous. Okay, well then I'm just going to go into my rant. Um, firstly, like the context of the scene is literally right there in the gift that he included with the question. The president is asking, you're a man? Because he's surprised to see that there's a male that's, that's, that's coming here. Uh, there is a theory. Uh, I don't, you know, it's unconfirmed, but a lot of people believe that the president was expecting Olga and Raiden somewhat resembles Olga. Maybe if you squint, I don't know. So maybe the president was expecting Olga to come for him or he, or someone said like a, a woman's going to come to assassinate you or something. And so, he was surprised that it was actually a man. Um, why did he actually grab his crotch? Um, well, okay, so remember when uh, the colonel is first talking about the skull suit, Raiden says, there's a lot of pressure on my torso. Um, and a lot of people comment, commented back in the day on how the skull suit, it it like slimmed down his waist and made him look more feminine. Now Raiden's character is actually designed to be androgynous. That's like his, his little literal purpose is to, is to confuse people, uh, you know, as to whether he's a man or a woman. And that was a design choice because apparently Kojima and his team back in 2000 or so, they, they, uh, or before MGS2 started development, they actually, surveyed high school girls. I don't know why they would do this because they're not the target demographic at all, but they surveyed high school girls and apparently these high school girls, one of them, at least one of them said that games starring old men are pointless. So that was the justification. What was posted in magazines anyways, the justification for Raiden was that he was meant to appeal to the, like the young female demographic. And at that time in Japan, Pretty Boys was just the the thing to be. Um, it's a, called a uh, Bishonen. It's a whole deal, especially in 2001. This was like at the top of, of the, the pretty girly man phase of Japanese art. So, um, But why did he actually... Now, the, the meat of the question, the meat. <laughs> meat. <laughs> why Jeez. did... Why did the president actually grabbed Raiden's crotch. It's because in Japan, again, this is a cultural thing that you won't see outside Japan, which is another reason why I don't like the direction of the cutscenes in MGS2. The reason why you don't see stuff like this outside of Japan is because it's it's very commonplace for members of the same sex to, to grope each other's genitals. You see it in anime all the time where, you know, one girl will be playing with another another girl's breasts who and and the the girl who's getting fondled is like the submissive smart wears glasses type or whatever and it's like a 
it's like a whole thing. Uh, now, <laughs> I don't know enough about Japan to say whether that's right or wrong, but yeah. that sounds really. Are, are you yeah. sure about it's that? All you, man. <laughs> No, yeah, men men and women will grab each other's private parts all like, the time. Like, and it's just not a big deal for them. It's culturally a part of their culture. Well, um, on the note about, like, squinting with Olga, uh, I mean, if you think about, like, one thing I thought about with that was, like, you know, I don't know how she contacted President Johnson or how, like, how he was aware of her, but she did have that ninja exoskeleton, which, if he squinted, may have looked like, the skull suit. The skull suit? Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, right. hey. I can tell you um, it's not a theory. The The script for the game that was included with the document of Metal Gear Solid 2 more or less confirms exactly that it's that case. So the script confirms it, but the game does not. There's a but lot I of guess, stuff in the script yeah. that isn't elaborated right. on in the game, but it quite clearly says, <laughs> uh, you know, the president says, you're a man. And then in parentheses, it says, it's not that woman. And then underneath it says, the president uh, pulls his hand back. He realizes that Raiden is not a member slash ninja of the Patriots. So he go. was aware that Olga was the ninja. Okay. Well, then there you go. So Boom. there you go, Ivor. Now, here's an extra tidbit about that scene. Um, instead of going to rescue the president, what you should do is take out your Nikita launcher and yes. then, oh, yeah, obviously you have to take it out to get out the gas thing. But instead of aiming at the generator, aim at the president. It's a very fun Easter egg. Give it a shot at least once. I'm probably on a <laughs> list right now. But thank you for your question, Ivor. <laughs> yeah. We can't air this episode you know, now. <laughs> uh, a while back, I did a Q&A on Twitter, and somebody was just having a laugh and asked me how much pressure and torque did President Johnson apply when grabbing Ryden's crotch. And what? Yeah. Okay. And and you know, I did the math. Right. I di- I did the math on this, and if someone wants to check this, uh, please do and let me know. But it's uh, there's no torque because he used an open hand. But <laughs> given the average weight of an adult male arm, the speed of movement, and the distance his arm moved, you can estimate about sixty nine kilograms of force. <laughs> and for reference, a boxer's punch is about 147. So that was a hard tag. That's a uh, that's old man gripped right there. Yeah, he didn't he didn't pull that. Did you apply the combo multiplier for old man strength? Uh, oh Plus the president <laughs> bonus, the presidential bonus. You think he twiddled <laughs> yeah. his fingers? The the Lyndon Johnson bonus, as we call it, which is appropriate because his name is Johnson. Right. Living up it's, to his namesake. Well. <laughs> Anyway, I hope that answers your question, Ivor, or Iver. I'm not sure how to pronounce your name, but he grabbed his crotch because he's... It's Quick Quackman. Quick Quackman, sorry. Yeah. Quick Quackman, he grabbed his crotch because he wasn't sure if he was a man or a woman. He literally says it in the script, on the, in the scene of the gif that you posted, so... And he does it pretty hard. I gotta wonder, though, what would have Olga have done if it was her well okay so oh, that was another thing i forgot to mention the reason another reason why he grabs Raiden's crotch it's plot armor like if it was a woman he wouldn't have done that but you know even though there's plenty of you know sexual harassment throughout the metal gear series and other kojima games the reason why he was able to do it in that cutscene is because it was it was actually two males but it would have been different if uh if it was olga so, uh, so question right. number two Let's see what we got here, because there's, there's a lot. Do you have one that you'd like to answer? Does anybody uh, else have one I, before I go? Yeah. I feel like I just went on a whole tirade. 
Yeah, we can we can do Dylan's. He had a couple actually. Uh, so Dylan Belcher, I pronounced that right. I hope so. Um, he asked, which one would you say contains the most pivotal, vital, and pivotal scenes that convey the true anti-war message of MGS? So, what is the best example of Kojima really pushing that anti-war message? I, the obvious answer for me is the opening of MGS Four. Yeah. That I thought that was. Say what you will about the rest of the game, but that was a very powerful intro, uh, especially with the the love theme playing behind that whole scene and, uh, you know, uh, David Hayter's delivery of that war has changed thing, that that speech. Um, that was I thought that was really well done. Um, so for me, that that really hammers the point home. I've got two picks. One is just that little somber scene between Snake and Meryl where she's just sort of thinking about her her previous goals of becoming a soldier and yeah. realizing that there's there's no glamour to be found in it. Mm-hmm. And just that that, you know, that very simple realization on a personal level I really liked. Yeah. Um the other one and you might disagree with this. And this this is more this is I guess less war and more nuclear weapons, but they're kind of very intimately tied together. The disarmament and FOB system in MGS5 is really clever with how it's constructed because the the entire premise of getting to that disarmament point, putting, putting aside the whole oops, we unlocked it accidentally aspect of it um, and assuming it worked as intended, you basically have to get every single person playing the game to cooperate in order to hit that point. If everyone is not on board, it is almost impossible to get there. Yeah, it's pretty much like the mask situation right now. It's like, oh, damn it. We got to worry about those people over there. We're messing it up for everybody. Yeah, you have to get the fringes. And that, I felt, was one of the the best ways to I've, I've ever seen to communicate an idea through gameplay that, you know, the idea of, all right, if you look at nuclear deterrence and that, that entire mutually assured destruction concept and how impossible it is to disarm, like we're going to turn that into a game so that hopefully you understand why this is such a big problem in real life, because this is essentially the same problem. If two countries have nukes, neither one's going to want to disarm because that puts them at a disadvantage. It makes them vulnerable. And so taking that idea and turning it into a mechanic, I felt was really clever. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and going off of what you said, for me, um, I think the Phantom Pain, that disarmament scene with Kaz, you know, and he's just talking about only when our children show the wisdom not to forge new spears. That speech is really powerful. I just, I love that scene. So I'm glad that you mentioned that barrel bathroom scene. Uh, I was a little worried that mine would seem a little. Um, like, I guess, superfluous. Uh, but my scene, and, you know, it's, it's, it's in a greater context, I think it's very effective, um, is Meryl's monologue after she gets shot by Sniper Wolf. You know, as Nitro had mentioned, her plot, you know, despite the fact that it's a bit short, given the whole multiple endings thing, um, her plot is just about, uh, you know, figuring out how 
unglamorous war really is and how futile her quest to follow her father's footsteps are. Right. Um, and, it, and, and, you know, the bathroom scene is great, how, you know, she almost, like, okay, person, from a personal standpoint, you know, when I was a kid and I saw that, I was like, oh, man, it's a badass girl, you know, because I was kind of a tomboy at the time, and I thought that line about uh, when she gets the 45 and she's like, oh, I'm more comfortable with this than a bra. And, you know, as a kid, that seems cool. Um, but as an adult, seeing that in retrospect, it's it's like watching, you know, somebody get, like, essentially fall for propaganda. Uh, granted, this propaganda mm, yeah. was a bit on a personal level, but she's, like, droning on uh, like uh, like a post from Just Boot Things or something like that. You know, looking at it, from that perspective, um, it's a little unnerving. And then, you know, it all accumulates to her getting shot and then just breaking down, talking about how war isn't glamorous. Like, this is this is pretty much the accumulation of you following this goal, this dream of you being a, a, a great soldier. Um, and, of course, it's up to the player or not, whether, whether Meryl kind of pulls through or not. But I guess both in a vacuum as well as how that scene kind of grew on me as a person, that was the most effective, like, anti-war message there. Hmm. Very nice. Yeah, yeah that was a great scene. So I, I'm wondering if the, the question is more like which game is, like, most successful at conveying the uh, the anti-war message, or if, it, if he's talking about individual scenes. I'm not sure. Oh. Oh, that, that's, like, so much more tough because i feel like right almost like okay i'm so i use allegories all the time i'm sorry everybody but in the same way that david simon's the wire each season sort of breaks down why baltimore is in the state that it's the decrepit state that it's in i feel like metal gear follows that same energy where you know, each game is effective in exploring its anti-war message, but it, it breaks right. it down into specific concepts like race, genes, memes, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, so that, that's a tough question to answer if you if we yeah, break it down by uh, game. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Dylan. If you could if you could clarify, uh, maybe we will tackle that on the next episode. But I, I did like his second question, which was. Uh, how different do you think the lore would be if Snake killed Ocelot in 1964? First and foremost, I want to mention the, um, if you guys have the remaster, the H2 remaster. So there's a there's an Easter egg, and Dylan, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, but in your first encounter with Ocelot in Metal Gear Solid 3, um, he is knocked out, uh, and he's essentially at your mercy. All you have equipped is, I think, like a tranquilizer gun and a um, knife, but if you, yeah. you know, actually put the effort in to kill a knocked out ocelot, um, you get the game over screen. You get that time paradox. Um, you get the time paradox saying ocelot is dead. And if you're playing the remasters, you get a trophy and or uh, achievement trophy or achievement. Yeah. Saying, uh, okay. uh, problem solved <laughs> series over. <laughs> I have right. never been able to trigger this, but I've heard it happens that. You can you can get weapons during the virtuous mission. You can get like a rifle and and a couple other things. Yeah. Um. You just have to hunt around for them. Uh, I have heard that if you shoot him in the leg, he will have a bandage during Operation Snake Eater. But I don't never buy it. Get it to work uh, unless a I've data miner that. found the texture. <laughs> I don't buy it. <laughs> if somebody could could 
either prove that or or correct me. I would really appreciate it. But but I've never been able to verify it. But going back going back to the question, I don't I don't want this to be all about like Easter eggs and and things like that. I, th- I think it's a legitimate question because, uh, I mean, essentially Ocelot is integral, but at the same time he's like the chaos magic of the Metal Gear universe. Yeah, he's a living MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's hard it's hard to kind of pull that out. I honestly, I'm. I know this was a serious question, but I'm officially filing it under joke questions because if if Ocelot dies in '64, then yeah, it, job done, series over. You don't have any of the Metal Gears after that, so that's how different it would be. Is it? It would be. There would be completely different games. So, so you'd so have okay. to actually follow the sequence of events. Yeah, nothing in, in Portable Ops would happen. Therefore, the stuff that happened in Peace Walker wouldn't be set up that way. So what would be the first branching point difference? Essentially, what would what would be the first thing to change without Ocelot? So he kills them in the end uh, with the, their little their little standoff? It depends on when he kills them. Any Anytime in, in 1964, Snake kills Ocelot. Depends. For the sake of argument, let's say virtuous. Sure. Okay, so he escapes with Sokolov. Ocelot's dead. Same thing essentially happens. Uh, the next time we see Ocelot is after he meets Eva, and then I just suppose he would have more time with Eva, would have things planned out a bit more since there wouldn't be an encounter. There wouldn't be a fight with him on the cliffside, though he'd probably still encounter the pain. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, would he still have his eye? Because... Um, that's the one I'm thinking about. Like, would he have survived that torture sequence if Ocelot had not been there? How would that have gone? He, he would definitely still. He'd definitely still have his other eye. Not necessarily, because the boss was going to cut it out. No, she uh, wasn't. No, she Until, wasn't. Uh, you don't think you think she would have balked at the last second? No, because she was on mission. She would have killed Volgan. Like, she would have made him think that he was going to get a. Like, she would have like maybe scratched his eye was, and then thrown like, the look, knife at Volgan's neck. Look, big boss. Or boss, or what the fuck ever. Uh, Jack, Jack, you are doing (laughs) too well right now. We need to sandbag you a little. This is only going to take a second. It's going to be like pulling out a Band-Aid. She wasn't going to cut his eye out. Because, I mean, if you think about it, it's the boss. Well, I mean, at that point, Volgan had pretty much let the whole plot go, too. Because you know he's he's monologuing like like a comic book villain and like yeah it's it's locked in the underground vault that thing that everyone's looking for it's totally there. Well, um, forget forget the details. So she knows at that point. Like so, MGS MGS three MGS three you know the boss is gonna fulfill her mission. Snake's gonna kill the boss and you blow up the Shagohod and he's gonna go back to the states. But if Ocelot's dead, he doesn't retrieve the second half of the legacy. He doesn't tell Zero to recruit Snake into the Patriots. There's no Patriots. There's no rest of the series. Hmm. Done. So, now, what? how do you have a Metal Gear series after that? Well, you'd have a bunch of games with Snake fighting in Vietnam, because he totally did that with Python. Uh, It would be a lot less gay. Which is bad for <laughs> what? me. <laughs> what? Wait. It would still be pretty gay, but like a six Jeez. instead of an eight. And there would be he wouldn't be able to rescue him uh, around the Phantom Pain, you know, out of the hospital and stuff. So there's that going on. Right. Uh, no, like I the liked whole Python. series that wouldn't Phantom Pain wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Uh, Python was a cool character. He should have been around more. 
Yeah, Big Boss yeah, would have died. Freeze. Big Boss would have died uh, during that scene, pretty much. Yeah, but how comprehensive and dangerous would Big Boss have been at that point? Like Big Boss doesn't form MSF without being first a member of the Patriots, so he would have kept being yeah, he would have been a member of while. the U.S. military. Yeah. He he would have just uh, kept wandering around doing shit. I don't think he would have wandered around. I think he would have retired as a United States soldier. He would have like gotten command of some other unit and just gotten old and and just rotted just away. Open up a smoothie king. So you don't think Zero would have uh, done his stuff? Well, <laughs> Zero Zero doesn't. Zero might have, but Snake doesn't get involved in any of that. If if not for Ocelot. So you're saying we would have just had a full on dystopia. I think well what did what did Big Boss actually prevent? Nothing. The GW and, and John Doe and all those AIs, they still took over the planet and, and did their information right, control. Right, but his, okay, but but here's the point. Big Boss might not have done much to stop that, but Solid Snake did. Right. Yes, so we get no solid snake without Big there Boss. Yeah. So And Zero rules the world. Well you're also asking like whether we like it or not, Ocelot was a huge influence in building sort of that foundation and, quote-unquote, the company culture of the Patriots. Um, so I, I wonder how their approach would have been to these conflicts without Ocelot's influence. Now, granted, you know, Major Tom probably would have still had, you know, his own theories and, and philosophies that led to GW. I would wonder how each individual, like, micro-approach would have been changed. Skullface would have... Uh... Still done his shit because he was upset about Operation Snake Eater. Yeah, that is true. But again, there would be, you know, Big Boss would not have been in that hospital in Cyprus. Uh, neither would Venom wouldn't be there because there'd be no MSF. Like you don't he doesn't go to that hospital without being mm. without MSF. And so Kaz never gets played like a damn fiddle. So he's not Kaz. Yeah, Kaz would open a Hardee's. Yeah. See, that's the biggest crime. <laughs> Damn it, Dylan! You 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 wound up getting us talking about this stuff. Now I'm so just good hungry, job. and I want a smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move okay, on. Yeah. Oh man. Good question, Dylan. Keep them coming. We can save some more of these questions for next time too. Yeah, we're approaching. Uh, we've just passed an hour, so if people want to keep going. Uh, we did have the Xbox uh, showcase this past week. That was. Uh, not too interesting. I saw the Halo footage and that was about it. Yeah. I saw the Fable trailer and that was like, oh, this would have been funny in like 2003. I saw the brute memes. <laughs> I don't get what people are so uh, up in arms about. I don't know either. I think it looks good. I think it looks good. It reminds me I mean, of, it's... Uh, y'all remember Drake Face when like the Uncharted 2 trailer. I think it was Uncharted oh. 2. Like, his oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. made it up for like a split second, and yet it's stuck in eternity. It Something just hits the human brain a certain way right? collectively, and everybody reacts the same way. Yeah, I, I just, I think the alien designs in, like the facial designs aren't very good, but that's how brutes look. Arbiters, not arbiters, elites are even worse, so... Yeah, they're definitely going for that that same style. Well, a lot of people are yeah. also complaining. They're saying it's not as detailed as it should be for for a new Halo game and not for like an Xbox. Here's what people don't understand. 
and people are dumb. And we've talked about this before where like people are demanding again, they're demanding better graphics. They want their games to look like movies because people are, they're getting so lazy. They don't even want to play games anymore. They just want to watch them. But what people don't understand, everybody wants every game to look like the last of us too. Right. As if that's the standard, right? Here's what people don't understand about Halo Infinite is that the the number of polygons on those weapon models are like three to five times higher than any previous Halo game. And you can see it just in the lighting. It's it's ridiculous just how accurate that lighting is. But no, there's not you don't get those light shafts and the ambient occlusion doesn't look like it's cranked all the way up. And and so, no, dude, I turn off ambient occlusion like every game. Is it not obvious that this is a style choice? I don't think so. Um, yes, it is meant to look like the earlier games, especially Halo 1, but it's like the the game... I think uh, Digital Foundry, they had a, they did a reaction, uh, and um, the, the thing that's holding Halo Infinite back is that it was originally designed as an Xbox One title, and so there's a lot of... Um, there's just a lot of bottlenecks that are built into it because it was... It was designed for a weaker two teraflop system, and and so everyone's mad like twelve teraflops for this. And, and everybody uh, cares about the flops, but how many people can actually, right? You know, explain what a floating point operation is. Exactly. Yeah. You know what this My, reminds me of? What? Um, I can't. I know it's not completely analogous, but it it reminds me of the conversation, or rather, the nonstop bitching that happened. <laughs> after Wind Waker was originally revealed. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. And how it wasn't that Space World demo with, like, super high-resolution Ocarina of Time-style graphics. and Yeah. Everyone was like, what is this cartoon crap? Right. Not getting that, like, this was an intentional style choice. Yeah, people were definitely expecting, like, Twilight Princess to roll out, and then it was Wind Waker. I was just like, what the hell is this? And it's funny how that's flipped over time because now, you know, everybody kind of looks back on Twilight Princess and goes, eh, yeah. it's okay. But Wind Waker is like the golden child. Yeah, no, I love right. Wind Waker. It was fun. Just kind of reminds me of that. Here's my problem. My problem with that Xbox showcase is that you got that Halo Infinite demo and it's like, okay, cool, a game. I'm going to play it because it's going to come out on PC day one and I'm a big Halo fan. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like it's as fun as the Destiny series, which is ironic, but, you know, I'm still going to play it because... I got major Destiny vibes from that trailer. Really? Yeah. Yeah, no numbers floating above people's heads, so... Yeah, that's you know. true. <laughs> but the, the, the problem with that whole showcase is, is just after that demo, you get an hour of CG trailers. No gameplay. All these announcements, nothing playable. And just like 3D renders of like the system yeah. itself, like oh, yeah. distancing itself apart. You know, that's one thing you got to give to Metal Gear is that they've never gone that route. Every Metal Gear trailer has always been essentially in-engine and has yes. some kind of gameplay. And they've never done the, the bullshit 3D rendered, pre-rendered trailer crap that everyone else does. Wasn't there like, I remember if I recall correctly, there was like some interview with Kojima and, or somebody at Kojima Productions and they had talked about when the Metal Gear Solid 2 trailer had been released and you know, mm -hmm. it had, it had made waves. People were spending all day at E3 just rewatching it and they got so many questions on how they pulled off the graphics in the game to which the right. response was like, 
we actually toned down the fidelity so much that we kind of thought they were mediocre. <laughs> uh, which is, that's like a marketing buzzword lie. The same, they did the same thing with PT. Yeah. Like, no, you, no, you didn't. Yeah. No, you didn't lower the it's, fidelity. I think, the hell? um, I remember Kojima talking about this a bit when they were trying to, to make Metal Gear Solid 2 look as impressive as they could. Um, yeah. And he was really worried, like, oh, no, like, we don't know what everyone else is going to show off. We don't know what the benchmark is. Uh, and he was, if I remember right, he was worried about what Square was going to show off. Like, <laughs> how's, how's Final Fantasy X going to look? Right. Um, and then, you know, MGS2 gets shown off and it just shoots past everybody by like a mile. Yeah. So, look, uh, I agree. Like the fact that the Metal Gear Solid trailers and Death Stranding, every well, except for actually the the very first Death Stranding trailer was rendered in real time, but they didn't have an engine at that point, supposedly. Right. Um, but you know, Kojima will he only does trailers in engine, but he still markets his games more as movies than as games, which is why we didn't see actual gameplay for Death Stranding until really close. Right before that game came out uh you know mgs4 you've got gameplay footage and, and essentially all of them except that i think what you were about to say that first mgs4 trailer well the first few mgs4 trailers were only just the cutscenes. oh you're and, right you know you're right yeah now i remember and so, when that first gameplay trailer came out they actually got a lot of crap because people felt like the animations were unfinished and to that point that's actually one thing that Kojima actually regains a lot of respect for me because he will prioritize how game like actual game feel versus, you know, flashy animations or, or graphics. You know, he knows when to tone down graphics so that the game actually will will play better because the reason why people were complaining about those animations is because they don't realize that if you have if everything is animation based if your game is based around your animations you get a red dead redemption 2 situation where you you have to wait five seconds for arthur morgan to line perfectly directly in front of the the can of beans in front of you and add it to your inventory and it just waste another 12 hours of your life <laughs> doing simple stuff so yeah, the uh, metal the Metal Gear Solid games didn't do that, and I think um, that actually, I indirectly, I accidentally answered one of the the Q and A questions, which was from Lulcilid uh, at Lulcilid. Uh, he said, uh, "Under slash overappreciated aspects of Kojima as a creator. I think an underappreciated aspect is the fact that he prioritizes gameplay when you actually play the game, but he still makes." games that are not games they're mo they're movies if we're answering this question i want to add in that he um a lot of the times when he gets these ideas that people kind of tout as being prophetic you know like yeah. oh wow how did he predict this um he's not really predicting this and this this isn't a dig on him this is right. something that i appreciate uh i shouldn't i shouldn't say this uh as uh a for certain because again this is one of those uh, i've heard through the grapevine sort of things but he reads a lot of science papers and science journals, right? Which is how you get ideas like uh, like the white artificial blood from police knots, and then later on with Raiden and uh, like that. That is actually an established piece of technology from the 1980s in Japan, right? Uh, it was called fluosol, and so like he keeps his ear to the ground in in science and technology. He he reads uh, you know philosophy books. 
these ideas are are not necessarily his own invention. He's pulling from like established sources and he's doing research and he's just pulling from different places that other game creators might not normally. And so, okay, yeah, he's not being prophetic, but he is also, I think, very likely far more well-read than, than a lot of other game producers, and so that's something I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I remember that surgeon, like, the the uh, human head oh, transplant yeah. thing that, like, being, everybody's <laughs> like, is this part of Metal Gear's promo? It's like, right. I was like, ah, stop. And to that point, you know, if you, if you, Listen to his, the codec conversations in Metal Gear, and in some ways, if you listen to the emails in Death or read the emails in Death Stranding, you know Kojima strikes me as the type of person. We always make jokes about how he needs an editor, but he always strikes me as the type of person where if he learns something, and I relate to this deeply, if he learns something, he wants to tell everybody. So it's like when he learns about gene theory, it's like okay, not only am I going to put gene theory in my game's plot. But I'm going to make sure my audience understands it so they can talk about that shit 20 years later in a podcast and how wrong I was with Gene Theory in my game. <laughs> you mean how right. wrong Liquid was. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Right. I'm sorry. It was Liquid's fault. Um, yeah, Cam. But if we are Good gonna, job not paying attention, Cam Clark, in ninth grade biology. If we are, uh, are going to answer this question about you know, what is over and underappreciated about Kojima as a creator. Um, I think Tim Rogers mentioned this in his Death Stranding review. Um, but everybody always talks about how his narratives are so wacky and things like that. And yeah, sure, they are wacky. Um, but one part of his narratives that I don't think gets a lot of emphasis, and we kind of thought about this when we were talking about the whole anti-war scene, Um He's really good at tying certain aspects of his gameplay to the narrative. Now, in both sort of a macro and a micro regard. Um, you know, and a, a good example of, of micro is Psycho Mantis. Like, if any other developer had made that character, um, you know, I'd imagine that the boss battle would be... It would, it would still have some, you know, supernatural elements, but it wouldn't be out of the box. They're, you know, they wouldn't do the whole controller switch. Um, and, and he used that mechanic to switch your controller to essentially emphasize how strong and powerful Psycho Mantis is. Um, to a greater effect, going back to that FOB example, um, showing how difficult nuclear disarmament is. He's, he's showing you his messages through the gameplay. Um, and I think I think that's pretty underappreciated. Sometimes I wonder if it's accidental, though. Uh, particularly in the case of MGS2, I've heard the argument made that the reason the game is so heavy on codec calls and is so much of an info dump at time about character motivations and and private facts about you know oh this is what what a character is actually like and all of these little details that they they sort of shove down your throat in the game is in some way, uh, an intentional reflection of the whole uh, overabundance of information theme of the game. Right. Sure. And while that works to the effect of the story, I'm not sure if it was intentional. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you say that, because my example, I was thinking more so of like Metal Gear 1, but with Metal Gear Solid 2, I, th I think that's good, because as soon as you said that, I thought about the codec calls about like Vamp and, and Fat Man, like, oh, he's just called fat because he's fat. Right, uh, like, and like talking about where Vamp gets his name, for example, like 
And like, that's, you're getting all of this information that doesn't necessarily have any relevance to what you're doing. Yeah, it's a, right. it's a stark difference from, you know, sort of the, the the sterile but informational conversations that we had in MGS1. Like, right, it, it felt yeah. Like, it felt like, go- like a gossip blog more than... Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Do you remember what day tomorrow is, Jack? No! It's, uh, it's President's <laughs> Day. Uh, there's a mattress sale. And we need a new mattress. <laughs> you keep bitching Look. about my bed and a desk, so... Oh, right. I'm gonna get a new one. <laughs> right. So we're getting a new one! Uh, riding shops at that Ikea. That one was white, but this one is bone-colored. <laughs> and the text is something called Pale Nimbus. Look at this, look at this rug, honey. It's, it's gunpowder gray. <laughs> Reminds me of my dad. <laughs>